If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be, um, well, as is true with this foundation series, we're going to be jumping around a little bit, um, but our, our core text, if you will, for, the day, for today is going to be Revelation chapter 21. So if you want to turn over there, that's like almost the last page of the Bible, so it's not too hard to find. And uh, so last week, we had the opportunity finally to get around to what is the gospel. Um, it took us a while to get there because I screwed up the preaching schedule, if you recall. But Joe did a great job walking us through what the gospel is and how it should impact our life. And, you know, it's funny, um, I've learned in preparing sermons now that when you come to those topics that should be the easiest ones, like they're like, well, we should all know what the gospel is, right? Or we should all know who Jesus is, or we should all know who God is, or pretty much any of these topics that we've been covering in the foundation series. It's like, well, we should know this stuff. We should have it nailed down. And it seems like those should be the easiest sermons to preach and the easiest ones to prepare, and everybody should be on the same page. And the reality is, is those are often the most difficult ones. When, you, when it's like teed up for you and you just feel like you should be able to hit a home run with it, it's, those are some of the most difficult ones. So Joe did a great job. I'm, uh, I'm already jealous of his uh, comfort on the stage and things like that. It took me a long time to get to where uh, he already is. So I'm encouraged to, to now have him as a fellow elder and, and, uh, and see him continue to grow as a preacher and teacher of God's word. So good job to him, and thank you, for Joe, for walking us through that last week. This week, we're going to be talking about what is heaven. So if you think about what heaven is, it's kind of one of those topics again, like most of these topics, where there's just a lot of, of different beliefs out there. So, you know, it's one of those things where the topic of heaven has kind of become this smorgasbord or this amalgamation of all of these different thoughts and ideas and concepts. I mean, it's, it's a popular concept in media. There's been movies and TV shows, some, you know, very fictionalized, some trying to be more uh, realistic about touching on the topic, topic of heaven and what heaven's like. There's been books written about it, again, some fiction, some trying to be more factual about what heaven is like, what we can expect when we die. I mean, there's just all of these different ideas in, our, in our, both our faith and our culture. In one sense, I think heaven has kind of become just this repository or this shopping basket of Basically, all of our thoughts and beliefs about kind of what happens when we die, what happens when our loved ones die, it's kind of like heaven is kind of like the focal point of all of those thoughts. So what happens to us when we die? Where do we go? What's it like? All of those ideas and hopes and dreams have all kind of gone into this shopping basket that we put under the label of heaven in another sense, I think heaven has kind of become this mythical utopia, if you will. So think of it like um, Disney World and Hawaii got together and they had a baby, right? Like that's kind of what heaven's like. It's just this land of wonder and paradise and white sand beaches and crystal clear waters and cool ocean breeze. Or maybe it's like a, a mountain lodge, you know, with a crystal clear lake. And up in the mountains, you know, but it's, it's this, this, whatever it is for you, this idea of paradise and wonder. And then finally, I think sometimes uh, heaven just kind of represents for us, uh, I say it in my notes as the house of God, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that really paints the right picture for what I'm trying to convey. It's really like this um, box, if you will, that we put God in. Like 
Heaven is where God belongs. It's his little space in the universe. So we put God in heaven and, and he's there. And we're content with him being there because we like this idea of God, of this distant, ethereal being. So he's far away. He's not really involved in our day-to-day -day lives. He's in heaven. He's doing his thing. He's good there. We're here. We're doing our thing. When we get in trouble, maybe then we, we need his intervention. But most of the time, we're kind of content with him being in heaven. That's where we put him. And I, I think, you know, few of us would probably say that. Like we probably wouldn't articulate that. And if, if we heard, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, no, that's, that's not what I believe. That's not what I think. That's not what I want for my relationship with God. But if we think about it, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, if we're willing to look in the mirror and, and be honest with ourselves, I think a lot of the times we live that way. So it's, it's a functional way that we live, isn't it? Like, um, it always comes to mind, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, it, it may not have been everywhere, but in the, like, the early 2000s, late 90s, there were these commercials for um, car dealerships, and it was the Trunk Monkey. Has anybody ever seen the commercials with the Trunk Monkey? So I, I did some Googling because I was trying to get my facts straight. It started out in like the West Coast, I think in like Washington, it was like a local car dealership that developed these Trunk Monkey ads. And then it, like, it got on the internet and it became this like, big thing. And so car dealerships all over the country were using these ads. I remember seeing them where I lived. But the trunk monkey was like it was this chimpanzee that came with your car and he was in the trunk. And basically like in the ads, I would definitely encourage you to Google them because they're pretty funny. But like in the ads, there's one where like, the guy's breaking into the car and the, you know, they see the back seat come down and the chimpanzee comes out and it's got like a club in its hand and it like whacks the guy in the back of the head. And there's one where there's these two kids out on a date and the, you know, the, the boy starts to try to make a move on the girl and the trunk monkey throws something at the boy. And then he's, he's like, I'll oh, just ignore that. It comes with the car. And then he goes back to trying to make a move on the girl. And then you hear this and the trunk monkey's in the back with the shotgun. And they're just, they're funny commercials. But the whole idea of the trunk monkey is that it's kind of like your personal assistant that's in the, in the trunk of your car. And if you get a flat tire or you're running to an issue on the road, then you've got the trunk monkey there to help you out. And I think in a lot of ways, if we're, re, if we're being honest with ourselves, that's the reality of God in our lives, isn't it? That he's our trunk monkey, that we're content to kind of handle things on our own and let him be in heaven where he's supposed to be. And we've got it under control until we run off the road, or we get a flat tire, and then we need the trunk monkey to come out and help us. So the truth is that when we think about all of these different ideas or concepts that we've mashed together into this idea of heaven, when we think about all of these different things, in a lot of ways, like all misconceptions, there is a bit of truth in them, right? Like if you look at them closely, there is some truth deep down. And that's why it's real easy for us to kind of fall into these erroneous beliefs because there is some truth, right? Like we see in the scriptures that heaven is a place of wonder and beauty and amazement and paradise. Jesus uses the word paradise when describing heaven. It is a place of all of those things. It is a place where God is manifest. It is a place where, where we can experience God in a more full way. So these things are true, but I think what we've done is we've taken things that are true and then as is kind of common, for us, in our, you know, that sin has 
distorted that reality. And so now when we look at the idea of heaven in many ways, the way it's portrayed in media, even the way that it's thought of by believers, we just, when we look at it closely, we're really, we're missing the reality of what the scriptures teach. We're missing out on the reality of what God has designed and created for us. And we're just falling short. So um, what does the Bible say about heaven? Right? What, do, what does the Bible actually say about heaven? I mean, if we want to know the truth about heaven, if we want to know the truth about the things of God, then our source of truth is the Bible. So that should be where we look at. What does the Bible have to say about heaven? And then I think the other question that we should be asking ourselves today is how do these truths, how does this reality, how do these facts impact our lives, right? So it's not just good enough to know about God. It's not just good enough to have facts and figures in our minds about God, but how do we draw a line from our head to our heart? How do we apply these things? How do they really impact our lives? So we're going to jump around a little bit, and, you know, but we're going to probably touch on a couple different scriptures. It's going to take me a little while till we get to Revelation 21, but that's going to be where we're going to spend most of our time. So again, if you want to turn over there. But to start out, I think uh, the most easy way for us to begin is to try to establish a basic definition for heaven. So if, if we were to look at the idea of heaven in the scriptures at its most foundational or its most basic, what would we say about heaven? I think in the most basic sense that we could think of heaven as the home of God. Now notice I said home and not house. There's a difference there, right? So a house is a structure, right, that exists at some specific place, right? So like I live at 116 Woodshire Drive in Parkersburg. That's where my house is located. Before that, we used to live in Colonial Heights, Virginia. That's where our house was located. And then before that, we lived in South Carolina. And even further back, we lived in Pennsylvania, right? So I've had homes in a lot of different places, houses, physical addresses, but a home, uh, so a house is just kind of simply like a place where we, we put all our stuff, right? Like if someone wants to find us and our stuff, they can go to our house. That's what our house is. But a home is different, right? Home can be anywhere. Like if I went back today from church and I got to my house and it had burned down to the ground and I lost all of my stuff, but my family's still with me, right? If we're in a hotel room, because our house burned to the ground, then our home is in that hotel room because that's where my family is. That's where my relationships are. That's where my life happens. That's where home is where we, we build out our lives, where we live out our lives, where we dream our dreams, where we laugh, where we cry with the people that we love. That's our home. It's where we do life. There's a relational aspect to home. It's intrinsically relational. So with that in mind, and I think perhaps another way that we can think about heaven, at least in a real basic sense, is that heaven is the place where the presence of God is most fully manifest. Now, I already kind of have to put a pin in things because I want to clarify some things because the astute Bible student or anybody that's been with us through this series should immediately think, well, wait a minute, Chris, when you taught us about God, you said that God existed outside of place and time. So God is, so we are finite, right? We're finite beings. So we live our lives built in and around time. Everything in our lives, the way that we think about life, the way that we understand our reality 
is, is built around time, right? It's a series of interconnected events. Time governs everything in our lives because our, our lives have a beginning and an end. We're finite. So, but that God is not like that. God is infinite, which means that he exists outside of space and time. So God is not constrained by the reality of time. In fact, time is a creation of God. By creating all things, God established and created time. It was part of his creation. So God exists outside of those, those boundaries. So God exists in all places at all times. God is present in the past, in the future, and is in the present at the same time. He's in all places at once. And when we try to think about things like this, our minds, we can't wrap them around it because it's just too great for us to understand. It blows our minds. It's outside of our realm of understanding. But God exists outside of space and time. What this doesn't mean, though, is that God is all things. So even though God is present in all places at all times, it doesn't mean that God is all things. So like God is not in Drew's guitar, and he's not in the, the seat there, and he's not in a tree outside or in the sun. That's, that's a heresy called pantheism, where people worship nature as God. That's not what I'm trying to say, but God is present in all places at once. So right now, God is present in this place as we gather together. The Holy Spirit is present in the hearts and lives of believers. God is present right now with Cody as he's preaching at Grace. He's present with our brothers and sisters all over the world. He's even present in the places where he's being rejected at this very minute. God is in all of those places. Psalm 139 Verse 7 through 12 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. So if God is present in all places at the same time, if he's always there, then in what sense is heaven his home? I'm going to actually draw on a pastor friend of mine from Virginia. Uh, he actually wrote a blog about this that uh, was one of the things that I referenced in my preparation. He's a really smart guy, and I love the way that he said this. He said, Heaven is God's home because it is the sphere of existence in which his blessings are fully recognized, appreciated, and enjoyed. So it's also the realm in which God's desires are carried out completely and willingly without any need um, for his intercession. It's from, from the heart of those in the place so this is what Jesus meant when he taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we should pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, God's will is carried out perfectly in heaven. His desires are fully and completely uh, carried out willingly in heaven. Right now, in our current fallen state, we don't always feel God's presence, do we? Like sometimes we just don't feel like God is there with us. Sometimes we... Uh, maybe shut the door on God, right? When we, maybe when we are in our secret place, enjoying our secret sins, right? We feel like we can close the door or pull the shades and God doesn't see those things, right? Like we can, we can keep him out of that 
if we want to, right? We don't always feel or, or appreciate his presence. We don't always depend upon his presence in the way that we should. We might not always be aware of his presence in the way that we should be. But conversely, in hev heaven, everyone is completely and unfailingly aware, appreciative, and gladly dependent upon the presence of God. That's the reality of heaven. So if heaven's, heaven is God's home, then what is it like? What is it like in heaven? Try to imagine that. If, if heaven is, is the place where God is most fully manifest, then what is it like in heaven? There's many imaginings of heaven that we see in our culture, um, but many of them, most of them fail to, I think, really capture the reality and the true essence of what heaven is truly like. Even in our wildest dreams, we can't imagine what heaven is like, what it's like to be in the presence of God, what it's like to be in the presence of the angels worshiping God, right? I don't think that we could even begin to imagine what's that, what that's like. According to Jesus, heaven is paradise. I mentioned that already. So if you look at Luke chapter 23 and verses 39 through 43, Jesus on the cross is talking to the other. He was not crucified alone. There was, if you recall, there was two criminals that were crucified at the same time as him. And so Jesus has this interaction with these criminals and Luke records it for us in his gospel. So in Luke 23, it says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he, this is Jesus, uh, or he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he, this is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, I think when we think of paradise, right, we think of, like I said, we think of this, maybe, you know, for us it's, it's the white sand beaches in the Caribbean or maybe it's the mountain lodge. But when we think of paradise, we think of, of just kind of like what our favorite place is. What's that place where we just feel most alive, where we feel most free? That's what we think of when we think of paradise. But I think for us to look forward to the reality of heaven, we need to look backwards at the creation narrative to get a real idea of, of what the Bible means when it talks about heaven being a paradise. You see, God's initial creation was paradise. If we recall and we, re and we read through the creation narrative, God created paradise here on earth. It's like the, the 80s song, Belinda Carlisle, heaven is a place on earth. Like, like literally, heaven, paradise was a place on earth. In the, in the original creation. God created the garden and he placed Adam and Eve in there and it was paradise. It was a perfect place where they could live in relationship with God. God would dwell with his people. See, God's intention has always been to dwell with his people. We see this time and time again in the scriptures. We see it in the creation narrative, in the garden. We see it again in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And we see it again in Christ as, as, the, as he sends the Spirit to indwell in the lives of believers, right? That God's desire is to dwell with his people. Christ, one of the names for Christ is Emmanuel. That means God with us. So Jesus was the full manifestation of God with and among his people in bodily form, in the incarnation. 
So all of these, the, this idea of paradise in Scripture, it doesn't have in mind white sand beaches and crystal waters, although those things are described in heaven, crystal waters and seas of glass and things like that. There is an idea of this actual beauty of paradise. But, but the true essence of paradise is that in heaven, we get to live in the presence of God. We get to be and dwell in the presence of God. God is with us and we are with him. It's a restoration of all of the things that sin put made wrong in this world, right? So that sin separated us from God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, they were kicked out of the garden. They were sent out of paradise. And now we live in a world where God cursed them and said, there will be struggles, there will be pain, there will be turmoil, there will be chaos. There will be all of these things in the world in which we live. And we see and experience them day in and day out, suffering and pain and death and all of these things. But this isn't so with heaven. Heaven is the absence of all of those things. It's, it's, it's where we can dwell with our Lord and our Savior. So let's look at it together in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to take the first eight verses. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who, who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the Apostle John here provides for us, I think, uh, several glimpses into heaven in the book of Revelation. This is one, I think, of the most vivid pictures. But many of them speak of the beauty of heaven that we can barely comprehend. But at the center of all of that is the presence of God. At the center of every every image, every vision of heaven in the scriptures is the presence of God. God is there. He is present, and we are with him. The ultimate manifestation of heaven is the restoration of all things in the new creation. So I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail because we actually have other sermons planned in this series where we'll talk more about the new creation and the end times and kind of what happens when Jesus comes back and, and, and makes all things new and, and completes the work that he has started upon the cross and that he is currently doing in the world. But I think, you know, it's important for us to take away from this passage at least this idea that, that when Jesus speaks of heaven as paradise, he's, he's talking about and speaking about experiencing the fullness of the presence of God. I don't think that I can hammer that home enough. 
that for all of those things that we, that we want to experience in heaven, maybe we want to see loved ones who are gone, maybe we want to be able to experience all types of different things in heaven, but the, the ultimate reward of heaven is that we get to be with God. I don't think I can drive that point home hard enough. You see, we live in this world of chaos and turmoil and pain and sorrow and death because of sin, but heaven, in heaven, that's no more. Listen again to what he says in verse 4. He says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, heaven all of the things that we, all the sufferings that we experience here in this world, they are no more in heaven. It's this reality that allows the, the Apostle Paul to speak of the sufferings of this current life as a light momentary affliction in light of the future glory that waits for those who love the Lord. Right? That's one of my favorite, that's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Right? That we think about all of the pain, all of the death, all of the suffering that we experience in this life and the idea that, that those things are no more, that there is rest from those, that, that heaven is a paradise where, of, of peace where we get to rest from all of our struggles and that the things that we experience right now, all of the struggles that we experience right now in the grand scheme of the eternity that we get to spend in the presence of God are ultimately just a light and momentary affliction. See, Christ has reconciled us to God and he has overcome sin and death and he is making all things new. And when his work is accomplished, what waits for us is paradise that God has always intended for us since the very beginning in the garden. We actually get to go home where, we, where God has intended us to live. Now here we kind of find ourselves at another point of where there's just a great deal of confusion because I think several questions kind of immediately come to mind and I've actually heard them articulated. I've heard people try to answer them. I'm going to do my best here again today. But if, if Revelation 21 is talking about a future reality, then what happens to people who die right now? So like this is a new heaven and a new earth. So what about the heaven that exists right now? What happens to all the people that die right now and have died in the past? Where are they at? And what's that look like? Because that's a question that we all really want to understand, right? I mean, we all hope and pray that we get to experience that in our lifetime, Christ will come back and restore and redeem all things. I mean, that's been the hope of believers since the New Testament. If you read the New Testament, I mean, the authors in the New Testament oftentimes write expectantly and hopefully that, that Christ will come back in their lifetime. And that's been the hope of believers ever since. And we look at the world around us and we think, surely, like, it's getting pretty bad out there. Like, God, Christ, you've got to be coming back soon, right? So that's the hope of all believers. But many have died and many will die without getting to see that. So what happens to them? Where do they go? Where are our loved ones that have passed away before us? And then I think the second question that ultimately comes to mind that people tend to wonder about when we think about heaven and the new creation and paradise and all of those things is if God created the garden perfect, if it was a paradise and yet people were able to fall into sin and, and angels were able to fall into sin, like what's to keep it from happening again? Like what if I'm the one that gets to heaven and screws it all up for everybody else again, right? Right? Like, that's the fear that we all have. 
So I know these are common questions, and I want to do my best to try to somewhat sufficiently answer them today, but a lot of, there's a lot of mystery, there's a lot of, of things that, that we just don't know. So the Bible is a great tool for us because it gives us all of the information that God has determined that we need to know for life and salvation. But it's, so it's sufficient, but it's not exhaustive. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't tell us everything that, it, that there is to know. And ultimately, we will never know all things. I think sometimes we have this idea that like one day we'll get to heaven and God will just be like, open up the playbook for us and tell us how everything works. Like we'll always be less than God. There will always be things that, that God knows that we won't know. There will be mystery wrapped up in God because he's greater than us. So some of these things maybe God has determined to not share with us and we need to be okay with that. God has found it He's content with leaving that tension exist in the scriptures, and I think we need to be willing to live in that tension as well. But I think there is some helpful and, ho and information, some helpful information in here that can help us draw some conclusions that I think are, are, are justifiable and, and reasonable. So that's what I want to try to do here today and, and the rest of our time. So I'm going to start with the second question first, because I think it's the easier one to answer. And the first thing that I want to make sure everyone is clear on is that angels, like man, are created beings. Like angels aren't, the only uncreated thing in the, in the universe, in all of creation, the only uncreated being is God himself. God is uncreated. He has no beginning or end. Everything else that exists from heaven to angels to earth to universe to mountains, trees, stars, animals, everything, everything that exists was created by God. Angels are no different. I think it's hard to talk about heaven without discussing the reality of angels because when we see descriptions and visions of heaven in the scriptures, angels are present there. And so there's, you know, angels are just a, a, a staple of heaven that we see in the scriptures. So I think it's kind of difficult for us to, to not at least touch on what angels are. So angels like man, are created, but they are a, uh, a creature that, like other living things, are distinct from man as well. So if we look at the creation narrative in Scripture, man is given a special place in creation. It's told, we're told in the creation narrative that man is created to bear the image of God. So man is distinct from all of the rest of creation, including animals and, and angels, right? So man is different from all of those things. Uh, this is, that's not, you know, that's not true of, of angels, right? Angels don't bear the image of God. In fact, serving as God's image bearers is, is central to the purpose of mankind. It's what we were created to do. We were created ultimately to bear God's image, to glorify God by reflecting his image into his creation. This means that God has a different purpose than in creating angels, it also means that despite what many people might think or say or want to believe, we don't become angels when we die. Like when you die, you don't get to heaven and get your wings and get to flutter around in a diaper like an angel, right? You don't get to do that. That's not what happens. We don't become angels. People are people. We remain as people. Angels are angels. They remain as angels. Angels seem to serve a variety of purposes that we see in Scripture. So one of the ultimate things that we see uh, angels doing in the scriptures is worshiping and serving God. 
We see that in numerous times in the visions of heaven, of, of God's throne room in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, all throughout the book of Revelation. We see these descriptions of heaven, and we find angels worshiping God and serving God. They're also, they oftentimes in the scripture serve as messengers so that God sends his angels to deliver uh, messages to his people, to his prophets. In numerous occasions, think just two that will probably immediately come to mind. We see uh, an angel coming to Mary to let her know that she is with child and that that child is from God and that he would be the savior, savior of his people. That message is delivered to Mary through an angel. Uh, Joseph also receives messages from angels telling him to not be afraid and to not um, leave Mary but to stay with her because the, the child that she has is, is from God. We see angels again in the Christ narrative proclaiming to the shepherds that Christ has been born, right? We see a choir of angels proclaiming that Christ has come to the, sh to the shepherds in the field, right? So we see throughout the scriptures numerous occasions where angels deliver messages, they also deliver to the, or I'm sorry, they also minister to those that God saves. So we see this uh, in numerous occasions again in the scriptures. Um, the, the angels minister to Jesus in, in when he's out in the desert. The angels minister to Elijah. They minister to Paul and Peter. So we see several occasions in, in the scriptures where angels specifically come and minister to God's people. Uh, we also know that they fight spiritual warfare, spiritual battles against the forces of evil in this world. So outside of our realm of reality, of what we can see and touch and taste and smell, there is an entire spiritual realm in which angels are doing battle on our behalf and on the behalf of God against the forces of evil in this world. There is war that we see um, described, in spiritual war that we see described in the scriptures we see vivid pictures of an ultimate final spiritual battle that will take place at the second coming, not just spiritual but physical, where we will then see angels and we will see demons and we will see um, Christ lead his angels into battle and overcome the forces of evil. I mean, there's all of these types of images in the scriptures of angels doing battle. To what extent we just... We don't know, right, the, what, the, what that spiritual realm of battle looks like. The Bible just doesn't tell us all about that. It just gives us little glimpses of it from time to time. And then I think the last thing that we see angels do or their purpose is sometimes to execute God's judgment and wrath, right? So we see angels executing God's judgment. Again, we see this in Revelation when the angel of death, or we see it in, in, in Exodus as well, when the angel of death passes over. And, and the firstborn all die, and we see it in Revelation numerous times where the angels deliver um, the, the God's judgment and wrath upon the world, the sinful world. So angels are definitely not babies in diapers fluttering around. I mean, every experience that someone has with an angel in Scripture, they're terrified, right? They fall down on their face in fear because angels are scary, right? They're not this, this little cuddly little babies that we think of or that we see in cartoons, right? Every time somebody experiences or has an experience with an angel, it's terrifying. So if angels are so much different from man, how is it possible that angels like Satan rebelled against God? And, and, and how do we know that, that angels won't rebel again? How do we know that, 
that these things won't happen again. You see, the Bible doesn't really answer this question directly, but again, I think it gives, gives us some insight that I can believe can be helpful for us as we try to develop some reasonable uh, inferences and understanding of how things will eventually be or ultimately be different. I think the key to understanding this lies in the Bible's use of, of election language. So we've touched on election before. It's a, a common concept in the scriptures, but a wildly unpopular one. But basically at its core, what election means is that God has created and set apart certain people for a certain purpose. He has elected them, he has chosen them, he has predestined them. Whatever word you want to use that makes you feel less uncomfortable about it is fine. But the reality is, is that God has chosen and created certain people for certain purposes. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9 where he says he talks about vessels that are created for clean and unclean purposes. And, and he says, who are the vessels, who are these vessels to say to the potter who has created them, why did you make me this way, right? I encourage you to read Romans chapter 9. I mean, I think Paul really just articulates it in a way that it's tough to argue against, right? But God has set apart different people for different purposes. And this has been something that God has been doing since the beginning of time. We see this in his creation of the nation of Israel for himself, right? He chose and set apart the nation of Israel for his purposes. And then like Israel went out and like slaughtered all types of other people. And like, for whatever reason, we don't tend to have a real big problem with that. But when we talk about God uh, electing certain people to salvation, that makes everybody feel really uncomfortable. I don't necessarily know why that is, but it's just a reality. But we have to just take the scriptures for what they are. We have to understand them in light of what God is teaching us. So election at its core is just this preordination of certain people to a particular purpose. That's what it is at its most simplest. And the Bible speaks of both the election of men and angels. So the Bible references God's elect, as in his church, those who are saved through Christ. It references those as the elect, but it also references elect angels. In other words, just as some men were elected to salvation and security in Christ and through the redeeming work of Christ, so too God has elected some particular angels to a special purpose, an eternal service to him in heaven, while others were allowed to fall away into rebellion. I think the key to both, though, is that, is that we understand that it is the power and the will of God that, it is, that it is, is at work in both situations. You see, it's God alone who eternally sustains us, who eternally holds us fast to him. In the same way, it is, it is God withdrawing that power from us that, that allows us to run off into rebellion. Again, this is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1 that God gave some people over to the passions of their flesh. He allowed them to, to pursue other things, to flee from him. But others he, he held fast. He drew to himself. When God withdraws his power from our lives, we fall into sin. When he gives us over to the passions of our flesh, we ultimately flee from him. No one will pursue God or pursue the things of God on their own. It's only by the power of God working in them and through them that we're able to come to salvation in Christ. 
In the same way we, <clears throat> excuse me, in the same way we should rightly give credit to God's Spirit working in us and through us to bring glory to Himself. So when someone sees something good in me, like if they see me doing something good that glorifies God and they see that in me, that's not me. I don't deserve the, the, the recognition or the glory in that. The, the glory goes to God. <clears throat> we had a friend in Virginia who was a missionary. And one of the things that always struck me so much in, in my interactions with her was the way that she was always deflecting any praise, any recognition, anything that came her way, she was deflecting upwards towards God. She was always pointing people back to God. When someone would say, it's amazing work that you're doing in the mission field, she would say, no, it's, it's just God working through me, right? So anything that someone sees that's good in me isn't me. There's nothing good inherently in me, but rather it's Christ in me, bringing glory to himself. So for those, both men and angels, who are elected into eternal fellowship with God, it is by the power of God's will that they might stay there forever. This means that God had a plan and a purpose in allowing sin to enter the world, just as he has a plan and a purpose in eradicating it for eternity and redeeming and restoring all things to himself. So the reason that the new creation will be different from the original creation is that Christ has accomplished the work that God had set before him. And now we are, those who are in Christ are eternally united to Christ. His spirit lives and dwells in us and we are eternally reconciled and united to God through this union with Christ. So it's Christ that lives in us and through us. So when God looks at us, Christ is transforming us into his image so that we look more and more and more like him day by day by day, so that we can no longer fall away. It's this eternal um, perseverance of the saints that we hear talked about in the scripture, that those who God has elected to salvation, he will not lose. Jesus says all those that God has given to him, he will not lose even one. Finally, in closing, let me briefly touch on the question that is really, I think, at the heart of all of our, our musings, if you will, about heaven. See, what happens to us, apart from, from Christ's second coming, what happens to us? What will happen? What will we experience when we die? Where do we go? What do we experience? What will it be like? I think we all long to know the answer to that question. For those who are living or who have lived, death marks the end of our existence, right? It's the finish line for our physical lives, right? We, get, we no longer live. Death is the end of our lives, but it's not the end of our physical lives, but not the end of our spiritual lives. So we exist or we consist of both body and spirit, right? I have flesh and bones, my flesh and my bones are perishable, but my spirit is imperishable apart from, I mean, God has, it's sustained by God, but God has ordained that, that my spirit should live on past my life. So our bodies are really simply like a, a dwelling place for our spirits. If you think about it, it's, it's the way we experience life, right? Like I experience life from inside my body, right? It's not a third person view. I'm not watching life happen. I experience life from inside my body. But my thoughts, my desires, my hopes, my dreams, my, the things I like and things I don't like, all those things are, are in me. The essence of what makes me me, my personhood. That all rests in my spirit. 
For those who have placed their hope and their faith, and their faith in Christ for salvation upon death, our spirits are separated from our bodies, and it says that we are absent from the body and immediately present with the Lord. That means our spirits go to be with Christ. Uh, theologians talk about this. The, the theological term that they use is the intermediate state. So we enter into the intermediate state. And they use the word intermediate because this isn't the final destination for us, right? We think about it in that way. That's the way that we've often been taught to think about life. Like when we die, our spirits go to heaven and we spend the rest of eternity in heaven. But that's not what the Bible talks about at all. That's not what the Bible portrays at all. When we look throughout the book of Revelation, when we learn about and other places in the scriptures that talk about the future reality for mankind, we were created again to be people in flesh and Christ himself took on flesh and now exists glorified in the flesh. We too, like Christ, will experience eternity in the flesh. That means that each of us will receive a glorified body. They'll be free from all of the things that ail us, all the aches and pains. We won't need glasses. We won't need to take blood pressure medication. We won't walk with a limp. We won't be overweight. We won't be too skinny, too tall. We won't dislike the way we look. We will be glorified in a glorified body. And we will live eternally with God in his presence, in the new creation, the way that God has always intended it. I think that that brings us back to God's intention in creation, to this idea that we talked about in paradise, that we will dwell with God, that he will be our God and we will be his people. And let's close our time. I think the easiest way for us to close our time is just to look at what Revelation says in the rest of chapter 21. Just, just pause with me if you, if, you, if you want to close your eyes. Just try to just quiet your mind, set aside the distractions, and just listen to what the reality of heaven will be for us ultimately. Revelation 21, starting in verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. It, he also measured its walls 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, 
the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates were, were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you uh, for the reality of heaven. Lord, that you have seen fit to reconcile and redeem a, a, a treacherous and traitorous creation to yourself. Lord, that not because of anything that we have done or could ever do, but rather just out of your pure grace and mercy. Pray that the realities of heaven, the, the eternal hope of paradise where we get to live free from all of the, the pains and sufferings of this world, where you will wipe away every tear, where there will be no more suffering or mourning or pain or death, Lord, that that reality, that that future hope in the gospel would, would be a source of, of life-giving light to our lives, that we would live expectantly of this reality, knowing that this is the inheritance that you have set aside for us in Christ. And that just knowing that, that reality would, would, would stir and stoke in us a desire to, to see more and more and more people come to, into that reality, into your kingdom. And that you would use us mightily to do that work. We just thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word. That you have given us everything that we need to know for life and salvation. And that you have created us to, to glorify you in all things. We just pray that we would be good stewards of that which you have entrusted to us and, and, and um, just uh, work, work in, that, in that hope. And we just ask these things in your most beautiful name. Amen. We're going to transition now into...